0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, am I on? There we go. Yeah. Um, I've been talking the last few weeks about ethical conduct um, through the Ethics section of the Eightfold Path. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And I'm somewhere in the middle of wise action. <laughs> I decided at some point to to not try to finish a talk. You know, try to speed through this information to let this be more of a conversation. So I'm just kind of wandering through the topic as this group wanders. So... Um, I want to encourage questions. So I'm I'm fine being um I wouldn't say interrupted, but I'm fine if you raise your hand to ask questions during my part my my talk. Um I may um for me it's often easier to complete a train of thought before I would um, address a question, and that may take a couple of minutes <laughs> for me to complete a train of thought. I may have like two or three items in my mind that are kind of accumulated. But uh, if you'd like, you know, raise your hand, and I'll kind of make make note of that. I, I'll, I may even, you know, hold my finger up or something to let you know I've seen you. Um, but but please, I, I want this to be a conversation around ethics. So I wanted to begin by exploring the place of ethics in the, in the path as a whole. I think I touched on this some last week, but kind of a new way of talking about it came to me this morning. And so I wanted to, uh, to offer that. <clears throat> so the practice of ethics is essentially a practice of non-harming, that we are engaging in the world. You know, the ethical component section of the Eightfold Path is about engaging with the world how we uh, use our bodies, how we use our speech. And so it is about using our bodies and speech in non-harmful ways. The place of this in terms of our practice, um, there is the component of the outer. That's a big component of this aspect of the Eightfold Path, that we are acting in ways that are non-harming to others. And there is also, um, if we engage with this practice, not just as a kind of rigid, this is the way I have to behave, kind of, you know, the, the thou shalt not mode of, of behaving, um, that, will, that will still benefit the world, but it will have less impact on you. And so the, the encouragement in terms of these practices of, of ethics in the Eightfold Path is not simply to follow these as rules, but to use them as training, uh, per, use them for training purposes, to explore how our minds are working, what's happening in our minds that is motivating certain kinds of behavior. Because our minds is what motivates our behavior. That... that Something is going on inside of us that motivates our behavior. Often, with ethical um, behaving in unethical ways, greed and aversion are intimately involved in the picture. Sometimes, delusion. I mean, there's always delusion involved with greed and aversion, but there's sometimes just pure delusion. That it's just like we just it's like we're clueless about how our actions are impacting the world. We're just we're just not connected. We're not paying attention. And so there can also be just this pure delusion that is motivating um, this harmful conduct in the world. So the exploration around ethics is to um, begin to recognize this body and mind connection, to begin to recognize that it is intention in the mind that motivates action of the body, and that one of the ways that this ethical conduct works is not by repressing what's happening, that, not by repressing the kind of impulse, or uh, not by repressing the feelings, let's say, not by repressing the feelings that are going along with the impulse to act, but by allowing the feelings and seeing if there can be a way to not act on that impulse. So that it, it, I think often with ethical conduct we have this um, sense of needing to repress feelings in order to not act out of them. And what I'd like to propose is that actually we can feel the feelings and not act out of them. So that's part of the, that's the edge that we walk with this ethical conduct. That that we... um, we're not trying to repress the feelings. You know, so for instance, you're having a conversation with somebody and anger wells up uh, you know, in terms of what they've said. And the first impulse out of that anger is to, to say something you know, kind of harsh or cruel back to that person. So the practice here would be to recognize that welling up of the anger to not repress the feeling, but also to see, one way I like to speak of it, see if that feeling cannot leak out into our behavior. So it's almost like becoming an actor. You know, that we, we clearly acknowledge the feelings that we're having. That that anger is bubbling up. And can we acknowledge that and have it stay internal, not come out in our uh, our action. So the, the way this works is by cultivating mindfulness with a non-judgmental kind attitude around that feeling so that we we bring attention to that feeling and see if we can behave ethically at the same time. So the that what we end up cultivating in the practice, what we end up cultivating in the practice of ethical conduct, we, cult, we end up cultivating wise effort, which is the effort to cultivate wholesome states of mind and let go of unwholesome states of mind. The effort to, where letting go can can be the willingness to be mindful of, uh, without acting on, so the willingness to be mindful in a non-judgmental way can be a form of letting go. It basically allows. Um, so things things come up in our experience. So anger wells up in our experience. Frustration uh, wells up in our experience. Wanting wells up in our experience. And we can feel that. We can meet that with mindfulness. And if we allow it with mindfulness, it's kind of like we create a container in which things can flow through without leaking out into behavior. And in that flowing through... They, they begin to dissipate on their own. It's like we allow them to become impermanent. We allow them to manifest their impermanent nature when we bring mindfulness to them. And so the, the feelings come and go, come and go. Now this is a practice. Initially, when we start turning to these feelings, they sometimes feel like they're stuck. And that's what we get to see. But the ethical conduct piece is about supporting this ability to cultivate wholesome states of mind, let go of unwholesome states of mind. It cultivates mindfulness itself, because in order to behave ethically, without this kind of repression, I mean, we can just kind of put ourselves into a mode where it's like, I'm not going to do that, and just like kind of lock ourselves into ethical conduct. As I said, that will be helpful potentially for the world, but less helpful internally in terms of um, working with these difficult energies. If we put a lock on our behavior, it often becomes a repression of the internal uh, emotions. And that tends to... um, because, Because they have energy emotions in particular have energy it's like you know they've 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 got some momentum some energy and if we're doing that to them it's like it's like they've got more strength you know if we're pushing down on those energies it's like they're they're trying to meet that that pushing down and so it, they they gain some energy by the very fact of being repressed so this challenge is this kind of razor's edge of Allowing the feeling without repressing and not acting on those feelings. So this, the, 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 the aspect of ethical conduct is the, is the support of encouraging ourselves to act in non-harming ways, not just to do it, but to help us work with these energies in a skillful way. Does that make sense? So um, in this exploration of ethical conduct, um, the aspects wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise speech, including uh, refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and idle chatter, I talked about that a few weeks ago, Wise action, including refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what is not given, and refraining from sexual misconduct. So I have had gone through the first two of those. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, refraining from sexual misconduct. What that means, and I think you know, if I, I'll just read you what the sutta's definition is, you know, because but but we do have to acknowledge that this definition is cultural Um, and I think what we need to do is to explore and what I'd like to do a little bit today is explore what is uh, acting in a non-harming way with respect to our sexuality because it comes down to non-harming that is what we're ultimately looking at is what does it mean to not harm with our sexuality So here's what one says. And, and the first thing about this definition is that the basic definition of sexual misconduct is defined in terms of a male perspective. So, <laughs> just hold that in mind. <laughs> he avoids sexual misconduct and abstains from it. He has no intercourse with such persons as are still under the protection of father, mother, brother, sister, or relatives, nor with married women, nor with female convicts, nor lastly with betrothed girls. So, from the perspective, the male perspective, what this basically means is um, um, not uh, engaging in adultery, basically, uh, where adultery is defined by um, a woman having some kind of protection. You know, if a woman is protected in some way, um, either by her parents, or by being a nun, or by already being married, or as the, f- the one definition says, even a woman who is crowned with flowers, which basically means that they're betrothed, um, that, that, that it would be unwholesome Sexual conduct to uh, seduce or engage in intercourse with that person, so it is this definition is um, one thing I want to point out about this definition is that it 's very specific it's it 's about adultery you know so it 's about uh, engaging in intercourse um, and um So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's achievable. This is something actually I want to point out about the, um, the, the, the precepts in general, the guidelines for um, ethical behavior, that the way they're phrased, um, refraining from killing, refraining from the intention to kill, refraining from following through on the intention to kill. I mean, it may not be that we can refrain from killing. Eating food, there will be beings that die from that. Um, I mean, like even vegetables. You know, <laughs> we, we, cook a, we cook a carrot and there's a bug on the carrot. You know, that being dies. Uh, it's not our intention to kill that being. So it is around the intention. Um, that the precepts are, are designed to be something that we can achieve. Um there is a a tendency at times within um, kind of present day teachings to make the precepts be very lofty um, you know kind of like you know it's it seems in a way that that we um We like we like it's like we don't want to just talk about the cut and dried notion of ethical conduct it 's like we want to somehow couch it in a way that makes it sound um, more beautiful somehow you know so um, you know refraining from taking what is not given that that also includes you know uh, not taking someone's time by speaking to them um when they're not interested or something like that. I mean just, just that, that we can we we can uh, explore the precepts in a broader way in terms of what does it mean to take what's not given? You know, does it mean overusing the planet's resources? Does it and so this is this can be an inspiring way to engage with the precepts, but it does make them nearly unattainable. Some, you know to to, to say that um, you know i will i will not use uh like Thich Nhat han has some reframings of the precepts i'll read i'll read the one around um, wise um, um, sexual conduct Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I vow to cultivate responsibility and learn ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and societies. I am determined not to engage in sexual relations without love and a long-term commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to prevent couples and families from being broken by sexual misconduct." So that's beautiful. It's a beautiful aspiration and a beautiful way to engage. And yet if we take that as a, a, God, as, as a something that can't be broken, it becomes an, a, a kind of a standard that's really hard to live up to. And this is something I think that in the Buddha's definitions he was aiming for something that we could live up to. Um, so that's just a piece I want to point out around these precepts. And in the definition here, you know, the definition is about your intention to engage and act in ways that are harmful. Um, the exploration around support, supporting um, others to not engage in that fashion is broader than that precept. And I think that's a beautiful way to engage in the world. And yet, it doesn't come. In, in my view, it doesn't come under the the auspices of this precept, of the precepts themselves. Um, so, in terms of what does this mean for our culture, I think we can come to some of what TikNat Han said as guidelines for us in terms of looking at what does it mean to engage in this exploration of non harming around sexual sexual activity, sexual conduct. And I think we need to look at harm in particular. Harm and also whether our actions are breaking other precepts. So, um, you know, for instance, the precept around lying. So if you are engaging in um, some kind of sexual relationship with somebody in which lying is a component you can be pretty sure that there's going to be some harm created in that, in that kind of relationship. So to, to use that as, a, as one of the guidelines. Um, now I think, you know, in terms of um, the, way, the way our culture is, is uh, set up, there's so many different notions of what sexual misconduct is. You know, it's very. It seems it, there's all these little microcultures, <laughs> microcultures in our culture around this. Um, you know, there are communities that have an understanding that um, it's okay to not be monogamous, and you know that that may be that may be fine if there really is non-harming. I think we again we need to come. Through non-harming. I mean, I was in a relationship at one point, which, at which the the my partner was very clear he was not going to be monogamous, and you know I I you know it's like okay you know I bought into that, and it was also very harmful for me to have bought into that. So, um, you know, we need to we need to be careful in ourselves to protect ourselves. Um, for me, I've seen, and I think, I think you know, there there was a whole huge um, movement in like the 70s, the 60s and 70s, the free love kind of movement, and a lot of um, understanding came out of that. That you know, when you're engaging in that kind of free love, somebody often gets hurt. So um, you know, it it is an interesting exploration. I'm not saying that it would not be possible. I have heard about. Uh, relationships you know kind of a three person relationship which works really well you know so it's not monogamous but I think we need to look at harming we need to look at is is there any harm being created Um, so the other the other clear thing that the the sutta definition pointed to is essentially not um Uh, Well, if a man is unmarried, I mean, like, one thing that's not in there that I find very interesting is that if a man is married, you know, this is, again, culturally, context. If the man was married, having sexual relations with a courtesan, a prostitute, was fine. You know, so it's not, in that case, it's not about sex outside of a committed relationship being wrong, you know. The, but again, in our culture, if a, if, a, if a husband goes to a prostitute, he's often um, potentially lying, potentially exposing his partner to disease. Um, so again, looking at the harming as being an exploration around this. So what do you have to think about? What do you think about this? <laughs> I want to hear from you on this. What are some of your thoughts on what it would mean? And, and it, it you know, it, it can be very personal. You know, it can be very personal um, what it would mean to be. Yeah, and we'll use the mics. Well, um
1: what I was thinking is, as you were talking about um, some of the rules around adultery is how important it is for me to just make sure to keep myself safe. Yes. Because I remember you know, for instance um, when I was in college 20 years ago and I had a long-term boyfriend uh, and you know, I'd I'd visit him and and my mother would just berate me and berate me and berate me because she's like, that's wrong and you're giving the milk away and you can buy the cat, you know, all those kind of (laughs) things. And then um, later on in my life, um, when I was I was married, my mom was very very happy I was married. Uh, but then in that relationship, uh, the the man started getting violent, and um, I tried and tried and tried to fix that, but I couldn't. So I had to keep myself safe. So I had to um, get a divorce. And when I told my mom, "Look, he's doing these things. I have to leave," she discouraged me from leaving. Mm-hmm. And she she said, but I really like him. And I'm like, how can you tell me you like this person when yeah. he's doing these things? So I just thought it was very interesting how, you know, we shouldn't commit adultery, but at the same time, we're all wrapped up in, in ideas of what what are the proper labels What's for violation. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. and and the main thing that I'm trying to do is just keep myself safe. That's exactly, the thing I have to remember that's
0: really important. Really important for I mean, in this whole terrain of. Uh, engaging with others you know, so the, I think that the ethical conduct sesh, sesh, section um, relates primarily to how we are impacting others but we do need to keep ourselves safe and part of that also you know I think this is a, this is a, how how our practice can impact others in a way it's like by your leaving that relationship now he may have gone on to, to doing this one in, in another relationship but but you uh, are preventing him from harming you, which is, you know, skillful. <laughs> you know, that, that you are acting in a way that helps him to not harm. So that's, uh, that's another aspect of this, in a way. Although it's not, I would say it's not part of the... Um, that's where Thich Han comes in. He's, he's saying we should actively be helping other people, not harm. We should actively be stopping people from harming. And that's not part of the definitions of the precepts. But it is part of, in our own engagement, kind of the manifestation of what happens.
2: Oh, where's that... Apart from Thich Han, where do you have a reference? I that? just
0: I just googled Thich Nhat Hanh Han precepts. Oh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <clears throat> I ask only because I have a collection of his books, and I would like to look it up and read it again. Uh,
0: let's see. Um, let's see if it says what book it's from. In his book. For a future to be possible.
1: Hmm.
2: I don't have that one. Okay. Well,
0: but, I'll Google it then. Yeah. <laughs> Two pages, <laughs> and then Thanks. the other thing is, I mean, it's it's. Um, he's also got a commentary on each one, so you know, there's a link that you can click. You can get the basic definitions, and then there's a link you can click to see what does he have to say. Kind of a dharma talk on each of these precepts he offered. And It's very inspiring. Very inspiring and nearly unachievable. And, and it's, it's, the, it's the kind of, it's the aspiration of how we'd like to live our lives. Um, you know, it's, um, so it's, it's inspiring in that way. And yet if we think of it as having to be something that we, if we think of it as being something that we have to do, it becomes unachievable. So I, I prefer to think of his approach as being, and he's actually changed it from, it says it says the five wonderful mindfulness trainings, which I can sign up to, <laughs> versus the the five wonderful precepts. So these are these are trainings in mindfulness as opposed to um, conduct guidelines. So, yeah, I mean, so it, he's he's shifted his language around it a little bit. Let me see if there's any, yeah, Mary, see if there's anything else I had in my notes. I think that um, it would be impossible almost to have uh, unhealthful sexual relationships without lying, that lying is so much a part of covering and all of the other things that happen, So I'm just wondering if telling the truth in mindfulness would just almost cover everything. Well, if you think about the the situation of my partner who clearly said to me, you know, I'm going to not be monogamous. But, you know, he was, he kind of bludgeoned me with, I felt in a way, bludgeoned me with it. It's like, oh yeah, I, I went out with this person last night, you know, it's like, do I need to know all the details <laughs> and you know it's so but but it was it's really because he was being clear and upfront it was my i felt my part in a way to extricate myself, and i didn't for years um, so you know that that but i i do yeah i mean i think it is something to um to notice whether our behavior is creating harm for others. Um, well, that's where I think we lie to ourselves. Yeah, because mm-hmm. nobody really does anything that they haven't convinced themselves it's the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> really. So that mind- in some way, right? In Some way, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> Mindfulness, and you have to be mindful because you. You do lie. You don't know you're lying, even. Here, well, there so. there are times, though. I would do want to kind of uh, uh, point to times where there might be things that we do where we are so deluded that, where uh, it's like we're we're just lost, and we have this momentum of habit of uh, of ways of acting, ways of behaving. And uh, when we are not mindful, those habits can just kind of come out, even if we know, oh, that's not so helpful. You know, so, so that... that um, when we, if we're engaging something with active conscious sense of I'm going to do this and knowing I'm going to do that, I, I would agree that, yes, there's a way that we've convinced ourselves that this is a good thing to do. And in our practice of mindfulness, as we begin to uncover, oh, these things aren't so helpful to do. There's still a momentum of habit that can have them happen, yeah, even if patterns yeah. are very difficult yes. to change. Yeah. yeah,
2: I think it's fascinating now that I think about it that the precept which you started off saying is was culturally determined, if you will. That it didn't mention any prohibition, if you will, about same-sex sex.
0: Yeah, no, there's nothing in there about that.
2: <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Twenty five hundred years ago.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's it's about engaging unskillfully. I mean it it did it, I mean it didn't even say I think this may have been a lack in a way. I mean he didn't address it at all as far as I know. Um but I think you know, that, that the precepts around harm, so if there is any kind of forceful um, engagement, like rape, even same-sex or non uh, um, opposite-sex, that would come under the precepts of, you know, the first precept is uh, defined, the panatipata was this, the pali, is often translated as refraining from killing, but uh, it, it basically means refraining from striking. So it's, it's um, you know, any kind of harmful conduct, any kind of uh, harmful, you know, anything that would physically harm somebody, intentional physical harm, I think, is covered under that precept. So, you know, that, that they are covered, in a way, some of those things that are not mentioned um, but yeah, it's not it's not said that no, it's inappropriate to have same-sex relations. That is not in there. Mm-hmm. Let's see if there's anything else under my notes. Uh, so one of the things that I'm kind of trying to highlight each with each of these aspects is that um the understanding is that as we engage with these precepts, again, with not that repressing sense of, uh, I can't do this because, you know, I can't feel this. Let's say, I can't feel this because it would make me do that. Allowing the feeling and refraining from doing. that—that It can be an and, you know, it can be that feeling is there and I'm not doing it. That, that may be a big shift for us. You know, that we have a sense sometimes that if that feeling is there, you know, we we have this kind of sense of what's true to me? This feeling is here, so I should, you know, act on it. And this is kind of looking at the feeling and saying, okay, here's this feeling. The feeling is okay. No feeling is outside of the realm of what we could call sacred in this uh, practice. That anything that we feel can become the exploration, whatever's come up in our minds, whatever emotions, whatever moods, whatever has appeared becomes the, uh, the crucible that we, becomes this, the sacred uh, experience that we bring mindfulness to. We could, we could think of it as sacred in terms of it becomes the place of our transformation. So there's nothing internally, that we can't, that we have to suppress. We may find times, there may well be times, that we see that an energy, um, um, emotional energy, is so strong that it's very hard to not act on it, in which case we need to take care to do something, perhaps, like get ourselves out of the situation, you know, find ways to not act. And if that includes pushing that feeling down doing that consciously with the recognition of, yeah, this is helpful right now because it's so dangerous. It's such a dangerous energy. Does that make sense? Okay. Mm
2: -hmm. I don't really understand. um, Do you say that, for example, with anger, that we are never to act on anger?
0: Actually, um, I would put it just a little differently, um, that there are... There are things that come up around which we need to take action and around which also anger arises. And um, I would like to propose that often, like in a situation like that, there is also some wholesome motivation potentially that can be connected with. Compassion, for instance. So... um, a situation around um, um, abu- an abusive situation, an abusive relationship. You know, anger would probably arise in your mind if you were being abused. And a logical um, response to that would be, well, either to flee or to lash out, you know, to, to, to take some action based on that situation. So it's, it's helpful for us, to, uh, to take some action out of compassion for ourselves, out of the sense of kindness for ourselves, safety of protection for ourselves. And the exploration or the encouragement is to see, can we act from that place of... I mean, knowing that that anger is there, can, can we kind of hold that anger and see if we can act from a place of recognizing, yes, that anger is there... And I need to take action and to kind of connect with the wholesome part of that. And this is providing safety for me to take this action, to get myself out of this situation. So I'm not saying to never act in that situation, but to, to use it as a kind of a, a mindfulness bell uh, in a way. So there, there is this anger. There's a sense of wanting to act on that anger. And um, is, there a, is there a way or is there a... Um, is there a wholesome motivation that can be also connected with? But there are many situations where uh,
2: going away is uh, not relevant. For example, in uh, in the work situation, I think it's very healthy that uh, you react when you get angry, instead of uh, not reacting because you have to go to work the next day and the next day. Yes, and yes. Then you have to react.
0: No. So again, it, it it doesn't have to be react. It can be. Respond. So, what's the difference? So, uh, the difference is being kind of, kind of. um, So, in a situation where somebody is saying something, perhaps at work, that is, well, it could be triggering you. It could be triggering anger, unskillful speech of you didn't do that, and you know, you're you're useless, whatever. You know, however, people unskillfully respond in the workplace, and a sense of, so yes, there's anger there about potentially about this feeling of being dismissed, about being not acknowledged um, in terms of what you have done. And so there is that anger, and we could lash out out of that anger. That would be the reaction, lashing out and saying, well, you think I'm stupid, well, how about you? Um, Versus a a sense of, um, you know, when you said that, that was an inappropriate way to be in the workplace. You know, you're, you're, you're to to actually kind of come from a place of strength as a place as, as opposed to a place of lashing out. When we're acting out of our uh, anger, out of our aversion, out of our greed, we're actually acting from a place of weakness.
2: So then I can agree with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> That I call skillful reaction. Uh-huh,
0: yeah. Okay, I would call it response. I would call it, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you talked about some energies being so strong that it's best just to kind of go another way and because I I think uh for me with at least one person it's an area that I have been so deluded in and I, I think that can happen in really charged um attractions yes um the other thing is I found it interesting that they talked about the sexual act and not much was mentioned about energies and how we can manipulate and um you know, tease and just cause all sorts of destruction without actually ever having sex. So. Yes, yes. And, um. and that, that, I think, is in the realm of wise effort. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that we look at those energies. We look at how we cause harm with, with our with our energies. And so, yeah. you know, it's taken, again, it's taken out of the realm of uh, the, the precepts and moved more into the realm of... Um, looking at our minds. Although, um, again, you know, if we find those energies are in, inclining us to speak inappropriately, speak divisively, speak harshly, those are, you know, violating or, or you know, ca- having us run counter to some of the other precepts, causing us to physically harm. You know, so those energies, yes, they can... Uh, have us cause harm in other ways and so that that, th- that those guidelines stay in effect no matter what the situation is
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I like that it looks at non-harming <laughs> I, yeah really it's, it's, mu- it's a kind of an easy guideline for us yes. in a way I mean it's not an easy guideline but it's a it's, it's one that's more clear um, and the other piece around that, I don't know if, I don't remember if I've mentioned this in the past few weeks. I probably have. Um, that there are times when we're behaving in ways that cause harm. I'm pretty sure I did. I talked about the butterfly, a few, the butterfly chrysalids example a few weeks ago. Did I talk about that? Nobody's, okay. Well, I remember that. You remember that? <laughs> um so there are times when we're engaging in actions that create harm around us, and one way to, uh, to one one of the ways that we can um, meet that, you know, having learned about well, it's our intention that's important, right? You know, is that we can say, well, it wasn't my intention to cause harm, and so we kind of stop there. But it can be really important to recognize when there's harm being created around us, is there some delusion or something that we don't know, something that we don't understand, that we need to learn? So I'll give you a different analogy than the butterfly analogy, since I apparently did talk about that one. Um, This one I've also used as as this kind of an example. There was a a story on This American Life um, um, about a... a, um, a troupe of improvisational artists. And this group of people would do, you know, kind of improv in the middle of the city, you know, throwing a birthday party for somebody in a subway and making, you know, giving everybody hats and, you know, balloons and, you know, kind of creating an environment or creating a situation. Um, And, um, one the, the, one of the things they decided to do was to um, give give somebody a, a small little band the best gig of their lives, you know, to to have them have a really good experience. That was their intention. To give them a really good experience, coming they were coming to New York. This little tiny, they picked out a band, a little obscure band, and they um, their intention was to give them a really good experience coming to New York. And so, this group of improv artists um, listened because, but the kind of power of the internet, you know, they listened to this group's music. Learned the songs, memorized the lyrics, and a group of about 50 of these people, um, 50 of these actors descended on this little tiny club in New York where this band was playing. And, um, you know, 50 people in the first place showing up was great. And then the fact that, you know, they could make requests. Oh, what about that song? Or, you know, or they, you know, um, uh, do you need a signature? Okay, you can just come in. I'll give it to you. <laughs> it's no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there were... Oh, I'll just finish this first. Fela last name? Fella, F-E-L-L-A. So this, you know, and they, they, the, the while the band was playing, there were some people that were, you know, singing aloud with the band because they'd memorized all the lyrics, you know, some people that were mouthing the words and just quietly swaying, you know, they were all doing their their part to, you know, really get into this, uh, this band playing, and you know, the the, the band, you know, went back to their home, and it's like, wow, that was amazing, and this group publishes their art on the internet and so some of this group's friends after months you know kind of again the miracle of the internet discovered that this great gig that this group had had was an act and they were devastated partly too um, because um, as this kind of got around the internet people started listening to this group's music and then started bashing them. So, you know, they became kind of public figures in a way. Uh, so very painful, very painful experience. So here is suffering created in this experience. And in listening to the, this American Life thing, they interviewed, you know, Ira Glass interviewed both sides. He interviewed the the artist, the main artist, uh, who kind of coordinates the... The the events and the um, the band, and one of the things that the um, the innovator, I mean the artist, said was, "Our intentions were good." And that made me that made me feel painful. It made me feel some pain because I felt like, well, yeah, your intentions were good, and it was based on a lie. And um, also, is there something that you might learn from this? You know, one of the things that occurred to me is there are other art pieces that had been described in this show. In this show, had been public in a way. You know, they had been just who is around, who's on the subway car. You know, give them a balloon. Um, another one was you know people, people like. People walking by a, uh, a whole food store, you know suddenly they would look up and see a whole bunch of people doing jumping jacks in the windows, you know some so you know things like that where it 's just who's who 's walking by so this was targeted to two individuals, and that that piece made me think you no know, maybe that 's something you could learn from this, that maybe this form of improvisational art should not be targeted to individuals so in this seeing that there is suffering that's created around your actions, to not just stop with, well, our intentions were good. And that can be, that can be a, a, a kind of a, a Buddhist cop-out in a way. You know, well, my intentions were good. It's your karma. You know, it's your problem that you reacted to that. Maybe there's something for us to learn also. So... Um, you know in this observing of how we're impacting others you know to not to not beat ourselves up it's like well we didn't know we didn't understand you know in a way you know the, that this would cause harm and so but to reflect so this caused harm what can i learn from this so now it's time to stop <laughs> so i'll be away next week teaching a retreat, and then back the following week. So continue this conversation then. (laughs) So thank you all for your participation.